This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. In 1985, or the art program I hope to attend in 1992. Sometimes I imagine what might have been if my first marriage hadn't fallen apart, or the second. I will never really know, but I imagine that self a very different self with shorter hair and different clothes, as if the choices I made for myself define how I look in addition to how I live. Somehow, these other selves have a sunnier disposition and cleaner closets, and they are almost always thinner. They have more money and more free time, they drink less, and they definitely don't worry about getting older. Nowadays, they are more of a secret self, as the memory of what might have been is now more of a projection of what isn't than what if. But mostly I find myself fascinated as I live my deeply ritualized and ingrained life with the idea of this unknown other. Who could I have been? Should I have been her? Could I have been her? And what about her? This past summer I spent a lot of time in Albany, New York, the home of my alma mater, the State University of New York at Albany. I wasn't there to visit the school per se, but rather because my father, who lives in upstate New York, was in the hospital undergoing triple bypass surgery. The first day was long and exaggerated, every response analyzed, every behavior deconstructed. My family was fully on edge as we waited for the news, and then when the news was good, we waited for physical verification. But my dad's recovery took longer than expected, and three days in Albany turned into seven. Most of the time I spent in the hospital, but one afternoon I headed over to the campus that was the center of my universe so, so many, many years ago. There I retraced my baby steps in design and literature and art and boys and books and bands. All of the offices and classrooms were locked, but the buildings were still open. I walked by everyone, past the library, through the art gallery, into the English department. I traced the embossed letters of the nameplate on the office door of my favorite literature professor, whom I was thrilled to see was still teaching. I ran up the three flights of stairs in the campus center to the offices of the school newspaper and the radio station and on tiptoes tried to peer through the dark windows into the rooms where I'd spent thousands of hours. As I lingered in the hallways, I looked down at the surging fountain in the center of the campus and remembered the same view in the same building by the same person so long ago, how I stood in the same spot squinting in the daylight for a clue, any clue at all, to who I was or what I would become. And it occurred to me as I stood there that I could simultaneously, vividly look both ways, backward and forward at once. I remembered longing to know what was coming, who I would become, and how. And I suddenly saw it all over again in front of me. The light was exactly the same, and as the sun fell and the summer shadows slivered against the elegant, lean, concrete towers in the distance, I recognized the smell of the warm air, the precise pink and gray of the coming dusk, and the mysterious melancholy and joy of both knowing and not knowing, and the continuity that occurs when both collide. Last week, in preparation for today's show, 
I went foraging through my storage closet looking for an old scrapbook I put together years before I went to college. It was a rather makeshift scrapbook as I simply used a large blank sketchbook as a vessel for my ephemera. This included the requisite party and bat mitzvah invitations, my commendations in art and home economics, various diplomas and newspaper clippings, and some shredded prom corsages. But it also included things that I had long forgotten existed, the airplane boarding pass for a trip to Europe in 1976, the first cryptogram I ever solved from the Long Island Daily Newspaper Newsday in 1973, a faded mimeographed copy of the Lawrence Ferlinghetti poem, The Penny Candy Store Beyond the E.L., with my scribbled notation, Why Does He Say Too Soon? A handmade poster encouraging my fellow students to vote for me for senior class secretary of student affairs in high school. The playbill from a 1970s production of Chorus Line. And most incredulously, the original tag from my very first pair of Levi's. As I gingerly hugged the playbill, I surveyed these scraps, this evidence of a life, but I felt feeble recalling my desire to document such banality, how foolish I was. As I rifled through the book again, I fell upon this silly little threadbare newspaper cryptogram. I assumed I'd saved it because it was the first code I ever broke. But as I reread the content of this code I broke nearly four decades ago, it occurred to me that perhaps I kept it because of the message it contained, this excerpt from Albert Schweitzer's autobiography. Because I have confidence in the power of truth and of the spirit, I believe in the future of mankind. Maybe we do collect our scraps and our memories as evidence of a life lived. And perhaps we decorate our pages and our dreams through the projective lens of what we hope for. But maybe, as Ezra Pound so appropriately stated, we do not know the past in chronological sequence. It may be convenient to lay it out on the table with dates pasted on here and there. But what we know, we know by ripples and spirals eddying out from us and from our own time. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Jessica Helfand. Before we get started with today's show, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Jessica Helfand is partner with William Drentel in Winterhouse, a design studio in Northwest Connecticut. Their work focuses on publishing and editorial development, new media and cultural, educational, and literary institutions. Recent clients include the Poetry Foundation, The New Yorker, Yale School of Management, Teach for America, Harvard Law School, and the National Design Awards. They are recent recipients of a $1.5 million grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to develop an initiative around design and social innovation. And she and Bill and her family will spend spring of 2010 in residency at American Academy in Rome. Jessica is currently senior critic at Yale School of Arts graduate program in graphic design. She's the author of several books, including Screen, Essays on Graphic Design, New Media, and Visual Culture, and Reinventing the Wheel. Her most recent book, Scrapbooks in American History, 
was named the best coffee table book of the year by the New York Times. Jessica was appointed to the Citizen Stamp Advisory in 2006, where she chairs the Design Subcommittee. And she is also one of the founding writers of the influential design blog, Design Observer. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you, Debbie. Oh, it's so great to have you here. Before we get started, I want to thank you for the introduction to the marvelous quote of Ezra Pound, which I read in your exquisite new book, Scrapbooks in American History. What, an, what a wonderful message. I've always been a huge fan of the provocative, controversial Ezra Pound. Um, As am I. Yes. Um, yes, I know. I read that you actually did quite a lot of investigating in the bowels of the Yale Library, looking at the correspondence between Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot. When I was a graduate student many, many years ago, uh, I sat in the Beinecke looking through their correspondence, and it, there's really something to be gained that is not transferable, that you really can't express when you sit and you look at someone's letters and you see the postmarks and the stamps and the handwriting and the smell and the little drawings they do in the margins. And that was probably the beginning of my fascination with these, what I call visual biographies, these right. first-person sort of graphic evidence in, in use of some much more social historical context. You know, it's interesting. I read a couple of months ago, apparently T.S. Eliot was quite a voracious letter writer. Yes. And apparently he wrote love letters to Marilyn Monroe. Did he really? Yes. That I did not Isn't know. that interesting? But let's talk about your book. First of all, why a book on scrapbooks? Well, it all began with Design Observer, funnily enough. Uh, in about 2005, I, I was spending a lot of time in uh, large art supply stores like Michael's, which uh, I live in the country, so that's our closest repository for mm -hmm. material. And I noticed these sort of football field-sized sections of these enormous big box stores. Isn't it amazing? To scrapbooking yeah. supplies. And I thought to myself... This is the common currency of graphic design. These are pictures and words in, in, in terms of telling stories using materials to tell stories that are quite visual. But there was nothing in this visual culture that I recognized as anything familiar to the, the sort of rigor and discipline of graphic design as I certainly had come to know it in my practice and in my education and in my, in my world. So I thought about it and I looked at it and I scratched my head and decided I would write about it. And then I wrote about it quite critically on Design Observer and was rather vilified for mm, it by yes. people who could find me very quickly, as people do, by doing searches. And, and I took a step back and I thought, I, I think I've hit a nerve. I want to write about this in greater detail. And I, I hadn't written a book in a couple of years, and so I was sort of ripe for something a little bit more in-depth than our 800 to 1,200-word design observer pieces. And, and I set out to do the research, and it took me three years to figure out what I wanted to, the story I wanted to tell. And it was really the stories of all of these people in these books that much predate the contemporary boom scrapbooking. And that, that was really the thing that I, I felt was so, so lacking in so much of what I was seeing in contemporary scrapping culture right. was the fact that 100 years ago people didn't buy anything. They used what was on the table. It was a much more sort of visceral, authentic medium to just grab what, what was at hand and make sense of it. Now, how, what was the reaction from your publisher, your agent, your husband about doing a book on scrapbooking? What was, what was the initial uh, response it's a to very the idea. interesting question. My husband was, we went on a hike with the children, and I said, I think i got to write a book. And he said, go for it. He was very supportive and has been really, I could not have written the book without his support and my studio support. It was certainly a very time-consuming endeavor. Um, it took a while to sell the book. Um, it came very close to going to Knopf. Um, but as Chip Kidd explained to me, it was probably a little too American for Sunny Maida. Because <laughs> um, it really is just... <laughs> That's like a whole show on its own. It's it. <laughs> um, 
Um, and he was probably right. I mean, I really, in order to finish the book, I couldn't write about scrapbooks. I mean, it's big in South Africa. It's big in other English-speaking nations. It's big in France where they don't speak English. So, um, But I, I realized that in order to write and finish the book, I couldn't even go to England. I mean, I would just sit in the V&A for the rest of my life. So I wanted to write about this very particular time in American history, really the first half of the 20th century, when we had two world wars and, and great economic change and, and great political change. And, and I thought what was so interesting was to see ordinary people who were not visual people like the people who listen to your show feeling compelled for whatever reason to make these remarkably visual records of their lives. Uh, so we, we did sell the book. We sold it to Yale and I had a wonderful editor there who completely got it and supported uh, the, the writing of this book um, uh, and the development of the development of uh, the research into finding things. I wanted to include celebrities. I wanted to include civilians. I wanted to have people that were from all walks of life because all, everyone kept scrapbooks 100 years ago. You know, black, white, tall, fat, thin, short, male, female, everybody kept them. And so it represents, I think, a greater swath of American culture than just, you know, the, the people who felt compelled to go out and buy a blank book. Now, did you have any predisposition to your point of view before writing the book, given the um, bit of the uh, fire into the frying pan kind of uh, attitude that occurred uh, on Design Observer? It's an interesting question, Debbie, because I think I probably did. And, and I, I certainly have been criticized for whatever bias I brought into this as a, as a visual maker and, and visual historian, which, which, of course, I couldn't divest myself of. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I grew up in a family of collectors and, and a very visual right. family, mm -hmm. and so I'm certainly all of these things informed it. Um, and I had to be critical. I mean, I, 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 I couldn't really soft-pedal the criticism, but I also decided that in the final chapter of the book really looks quite, um, you know, objectively, I should say. Yeah, I think it's very fair. I actually think that um, most of the book is really a love letter to scrapbooking. It is. I really, you, you fall in love with these people yeah, that you read about absolutely. their books. And in order to, I mean, my point of entry primarily was visual because I'm a visual person. But once inside the books, I didn't just want to show pretty pictures. There's stories there. And that's what the book is. And I think that's why it resonates with people so much because they're all individual stories about love and loss mm -hmm. and wonder and fear and trepidation and, and anxiety, apprehension. I mean, enormous apprehension in this country after World War I during and before World War II. So, you know, people were, were tentative in trying to make sense of the world as it was happening around them in fits and starts. And that's really, the, the scrapbook, I think, as a medium, it really celebrates that kind of thing because it's all about incompletion. It's all about the sort of the indefinite. Mm. You can rip things out. You can put things back. It is, as, as the Ezra Pound quote so eloquently says, it is not about chronology. And I don't think, really, at the end of the day, biography is always about telling the chronology of someone's life. It is well, really a much more asynchronous path. Sure. I mean, look at what's happened to the whole discipline of the memoir in, in our current culture. Exactly. And, and I think when you look at it visually, those become little beacons of, of meaning mm. that you then sort of have to go. And you can assume. You, you're constant, it's a very humbling thing to look at these books and assume you go through the first 10 pages and you know what the next 20 will be. You're never right. Yeah. Um, actually, one of the wonderful quotes that you said um, on the Leonard Lopate show is that what you find is never what you expect to find. Never. never. And I love the idea of that. Because we, we tend to think that we're also mediated and we're also jaded and we know and we know the cues. I mean, as visual people, we know the cues. We know that a headline says start here. We know right. that a poll quote says this is a little tidbit. That's not how these things work. Right. And yet at the same time, it, what's so poignant to me is that you would get these people who were not 
not trained designers, who were not trained writers, making sense of things and, and based on things that they saw around them. So mm-hmm. why they would save certain things or write about certain things, menus, rep, you know, the food people ate, and the, the, you know, the way they cooked things and, and what mattered to them. I mean, that's really what you see. You see the prioritization of a past generation in a way that you, it's not filtered by any third party. There's no newspaper. There's no radio. It's just somebody sticking something in a book and telling it the way it was. Now, you mentioned before that you come from a family of collectors. Your mother collected portraits. Your father collected medical ephemera. So what was your obsession that led you to believe that um, scrapbooks would be? What, what started your obsessions from, with collecting? Well, you couldn't come to the dinner table in my house without collecting. I mean, it's still the same case. My, my poor children realize there's just no way. No one, we, we don't take anybody seriously unless they have a collection. And in my family, more than just the amassing of things, you had to talk about it. You so tell me what your life. children are collecting now. Uh, my daughter collects uh, buttons uh, on cards, but the button has to have something to do with the cards. So it'll be, you know, a portrait of a man, and the buttons are oversized, but they're on his arm. Where does she find these things? Well, tomorrow is paper mania in Hartford, and we're going up first thing in the morning. Oh, in right. the snow, we have to go. It's, you know, my father, I think in particular, and I, I talk about this a little bit in the introduction, he was a really incredible influence because he was a collector, but a very generous collector. He would write, he would lecture, he would uh, donate, he continues to do this. And so it was all about the collection in, in use, the collection as a kind of community intervention, as social history, but very much as an ongoing repository for discussion and, and sharing and teaching. And that had a huge impact on me. So, so that was that was the, the sort of framing of my of my upbringing. But the the one thing I have to say as a caveat to that is that I was the only person in my family who insisted on making things. It wasn't enough to just collect it. I had to use the stuff in some way. Mm-hmm. And that was hard because if you're the child of collectors, to actually make a collage out of even the discarded moments of the collection is a sacrilege. And it's an ongoing struggle I face that I, I have a, a sort of an, an internal editor that says, you can't write a book on scrapbooks. You can't make a book out of this uh, because you're going to have to move stuff around and you're mm-hmm. going to have to really, I mean, there is some artistic license. There's some, obviously, I interpreted what I found. I may be wrong. I think I'm right. I mean, I tried to be um, fair and not judgmental and not prurient in my writing about other people's lives. But I think any good writer or historian or biographer or artist to that for that matter makes an interpretive judgment sometimes that involves taking a leap that that you know is, is moving further away than the actual thing so well, yeah in science there's, there's, there's the phenomenon of once something is, is observed it's changed well exactly um, I wanted to ask you though about what do you why do you think people want or need or are um, driven to collect well that's an interesting thing I think in our personal uh, time At, in this in contemporary culture right now, there's probably an added emphasis because everything's digital, mm-hmm. and there's something particularly true about scrapbooks because they're so fragile. Archivists really struggle with how to handle them in collections, and they're all being exiled to microfiche. Uh, so the, the, what I talked about a moment ago about sitting in the bowels of the Beinecke looking at those postmarks on Ezra Winter's letters to Ezra Pound, you know, yes, you can go, if you're a scholar, you go into these libraries and you use these collections, but more and more things are becoming digitized and moved away so that they're protected. So I think the urge to collect is about the tangible need to actually say, I was here. It's, mm-hmm. it's evidence. Evidence. That's why people take photographs. I was here. Well, and again, even, even photography is becoming digital, so it, it gets that much more removed. There's something about the tactility of these scrapbooks, about saving things, about, 
you know, you talked about your, your Levi's label. I wanted to say that I thought that it was great in your monologue, by the way, Debbie, that you used the word mimeographed. And I oh. wondered how many times a day we see that, <laughs> hear that word anymore. And then, and then I also wanted to say that I thought it was great that you, you talked about the Levi's label and you didn't date yourself because it wasn't Vidal Sassoon jeans you were talking oh, about. I was yeah. waiting for that. No, that, that wasn't quite the same cultural bed That's back right. then. It wasn't. It's you know, nor is it still. Right. Probably. Right. Um, but I think it's, there's something about, you look in these old scrapbooks and you see fabric. You see colors you don't see anymore. Right. You see, party favors and the way things were worded and, and what people ate for dinner. And so it, it becomes a real testament to a snapshot of something that you no longer see. And I think that's what's always interested me as a collector. Um, that's why I'm interested in ephemera because, you know, was as a friend of mine who's a very wise philosopher, psychologist, said to me, well, if you save it, it's no longer ephemera. So what are you doing <laughs> right. with your life? And of course, he's right. But, but you know, they were things that were meant to be thrown away. Jessica, we have a caller. Uh, we have Gregory. Gregory from New Jersey. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Nice to hear your voice. Oh, nice to hear your voice after so long. Welcome I know. Back. It's been a long time it since has. you've been on the air. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Gregory. Uh, this is everything that you're saying is so fascinating. There's so many things I, I want to share with you and, and ask you. Um, the scrapbooking is just, it's really quite fascinating because um, I've come across two extraordinary scrapbooks in my life. Now, I'm a big collector, um, and I've made a lot of different kind of books, but the two things I came across in my life, and you would, you would just mention this, uh, um, them being evidence, uh, I found a scrapbook in my grandmother's closet once that my aunt had made as a teenager when Franklin Roosevelt died. And she made this huge scrapbook as uh, an homage to Franklin Roosevelt because it, it was the only president she'd ever known. And... You know, it, it wasn't just something uh, as historical evidence to say, I was here uh, when this president died. He was my president. It was like a catharsis for uh, expressing how she felt. And I, I came across another scrapbook of a, of a neighbor friend of mine who's 97, whose husband became a quadriplegic in the, in the Second World War, and he kept this scrapbook for 40 years during the time he just was in bed, all that time. And it was more than a record. I, I feel like, I, I wonder if, if you agree when, when I say it's, it's a way of expression to, as a catharsis to uh, express something emotionally and not just as a record keeper. It's absolutely true, Gregory, and I think it's a good point. And it's one I make in my book because I think that in many cases people do not trust their ability to express things in words the same way they do by saving the relics that circumscribe their life. And that certainly is is supported by these two examples that you give. I also think, I mean, obviously there weren't the outlets then for blogging and for no. electronic communication. If you were bedridden, you know, then you really didn't have what one might have today. For example, other kinds of outlets and even, even incoming outlets like television. But I think, too, that uh, your point about catharsis is, is well put because one thing that, that really, in a sense, um, puzzles me, continues to puzzle me about contemporary scrapbooks uh, compared with those of long ago is that contemporary scrapbooks are very much me now, my kids, what I did, well, the, the cake I baked, where I went. I'm overstating it, but really, really in a sense I'm not because people use their scrapbooks to record much more distant observations 100 years ago. I'm sure there will be scrapbooks about the inauguration and, and people wanting to save pictures of, of this very historic election and presidency for their 
for their future ancestors. But in general, even though scrapbooks today, as yesterday, leapfrog from happy event to important birthdays and celebrations and so forth, I did find in my research that, like the examples you give, people were much more likely to save things that didn't necessarily reflect on them immediately. Um, so, for example, you know, um, movie posters, movie ads. They were, I, I have lots of scrapbooks with young girls who probably thought it was just so risque to cut out a picture of, you know, somebody <laughs> kissing somebody in a movie poster. We never do that today. You say, well, why would I do that? I can go online and look at that picture, or it's everywhere. It's, you know, it's right all around me. But in those days, you wanted to revisit it, and so you would save it. It had nothing to do with it. You weren't ever going to meet Adolf Malju, but there he was right, in, exactly. in a Hollywood clinch in your scrapbook. That is so great. I, I just I, I I must read your book because it's just so fascinating to me. The other thing that is probably more fascinating to me is the fact that you are on the Citizen Staff Advisory Committee. Yes, I am. And that is one of the most amazing things. I mean, you must just be uh, ecstatic. I mean, was anybody a stamp collector in your family? Because I was as a child. I don't think they wanted me because of my philatelic knowledge, um, but there is a wonderful tradition on uh, CSAC, as we call it, the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee, of always having someone who can speak to history. Uh, Phil Meggs was uh, the, actually the head of the committee. Bradbury Thompson was on the committee. Um, and, and so I'm very, I'm very, feel very privileged to be part of that legacy. Um, so what happens with that? Just somebody just calls you up one day and says, hi, we represent the stamp committee and we'd like for you to participate in this. Yeah, I was, on, I was on my cell phone sitting in, in, the, in the parking lot at the dentist's office with my children. I got this call and I, I burst out laughing. I mean, I thought, you know, surely they must mean my husband. Um, and he thought, surely they must mean my husband. But they wanted me. The other great thing about it, uh, which is not anything that I planned, is that um, uh, there's some wonderful older people on it, like Carl Malden, who's 96. And yeah. so really, at my really? age, hanging around with people who are in their 90s is, a real, is really a big ego trip. Um, but I mean, all jokes aside, it's a huge undertaking. It's an unbelievable enterprise. Um, it has nothing to do with scrapbooking, but I have to say, one of the things I've been on it for two years, and it's an amazing institution. They, it, it, it's like moving mountains to get anything done because it's, you know, a seventy-two billion dollar profit-making. I think it's like the ninth largest company in the world. Oh my God! Um, and so, you know, I say to people, they say, "So, what are you doing for stamp design?" I say, "Well, you'll, you'll see my impact about 2016." I mean, it takes forever. Uh, the initial print run on the on the forever stamp was five billion. We ran out of those in a month, I think. So, so it's really it's a it's a subject for a different conversation. But thank you for your interest. But congratulations! I think thank that, you. I, I think it's a great honor, and it, as an American, I think it's a tremendous honor. Thank you. So, oh, okay. um, I, I can't wait to get your book. And, I can't wait uh, for you to get my book. I have my favorite Ezra Pound quote too: "The leaves fall early in this autumn and wind. The paired butterflies are already yellow with August. Over the grass in the west garden, they hurt me. I grow older." Thank you for calling, okay. Gregory. Thank you, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Jessica, we're going to take a little bit of a break. Um, I want to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer and theorist Jessica Helfand. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. The Internet's only all-business and financial radio network, Voice America Business. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. The Voices of Design series brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. 
Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part one. Enjoy. What is sustainability, and what does it mean to the design community? Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Phil Hamlet, Chairman, AIGA Environmental Committee. The definition of sustainability that I like to use is quite simple. It's basically leave the place in better shape than you found it. Scott Summit. Summit ID. Sustainability is particularly elusive, especially in industrial design, and that's one of the main reasons I'm here is to try to get a handle on what it means and just how it applies to what I do every day and what I can impart to my clients. Mark Willard, IDO. The pressure is on, and whoever solves it in a more sustainable and desirable way is ahead of the game and, and is what whether people sort of consciously or subconsciously know it, it's, it's definitely what we need. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Are you ready to go green? You've asked and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. From the stock market floor to your laptop, we are Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.33 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is designer, educator, author, and theorist, Jessica Helfand. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Jessica, our phone lines are open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And Jessica, we actually do have a caller waiting on the line. We have Margaret from New Jersey. Lots of callers from New Jersey today. Margaret, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi. Welcome back after all this time off. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> My question is for Jessica. And so I read, well, first of all, I want to say that I can be at the center table because I do collect something. <laughs> <laughs> I collect anything heart-shaped. And, oh. Yeah, picture frames, plates, jewelry, boxes, post-it notes, you name it. But my question is about sort of modern scrapbooking. And I understand that you've had some, I guess, less than positive things to say about it. 
that it's, you know, made of pre-designed, pre-made, and there's rules and guidelines and stuff. But there's also, I feel like, a really positive side of it where it gets people expressing themselves, remembering, creating, getting together versus sitting home on their computers. And I just want to know sort of if you see any room for that or Oh, I absolutely do, Margaret. And, and thank you for asking the question so kindly because uh, one of the things that happens, obviously, on these online things is that things get taken out of context. I, my frustration, it's really more of a frustration than a criticism with contemporary scrapbooking, is that I found in, in, when I went to craft workshops and so forth that so many women, it is primarily women today, it was not always so, it was not always such a gendered activity. I found so many women so down on themselves for being not um, able to sort of get it right. And there was this sort of, you know, need to sort of get the Martha Stewart kit and go to the right class. And and, and I actually, I mean, funnily enough, I, I really felt the opposite was true, that, that I'm, I'm sort of advocating a kind of green, sustainable scrapbooking, be who you are, take what's on your table. Everything is a celebration of who you are. Even the, the heart-shaped post-it note is exactly what should be in your book, not the fact that you should go and find the preordained, sanctioned version of it at the store. So... You know, and it's interesting, I mean, from a sociological point of view, I found in my research several dissertations by sociologists looking at, one of them actually was called Women Making Me Time and the Crisis of Creativity, women needing to feel that their their worth is, is more than just being caregivers to their children and their husbands and working, and as a as tired working mother, I fully support that, I know what that feels like. Um, but in fact, I'm actually looking to, to encourage women and, and people who scrapbook to, to actually look at what's there and, and make sense of what's there and maybe look at my book and see some of the things people did. I mean, they had no idea what they were doing. But to Gregory's point earlier, there was some catharsis, I think, in figuring it out as you went. It's not about getting the, the ribbons that match the border of the paper. Thank you for calling, Margaret. You know, one of the things that um, I was really particularly interested in in the last chapter of your book was the idea of um, women being very critical about the way that they're scrapbooking and the whole idea of not only getting it right, but also rewriting, hiring journalist ghostwriters, um, uh, journal, uh, journal ghostwriters for their journaling. Why is it that there's this self criticism in doing this endeavor? I don't know the answer. I don't know that there is an answer. And if there is, there certainly isn't just one answer. Mm. Um, I mean, I've heard everything from I don't like my own handwriting, so I'm buying that, you know, font through whatever workshop I went to, to um, maybe the fact that we're so saturated with pretty pictures and colorful things and people like Martha Stewart doing it so perfectly. Well, like in a day and age of Photoshop, you have you to. Feel, you feel sort of dwarfed feel by like comparison. Um, and so, really, I mean, my, my criticism isn't coming from high as the, as the Yale graphic designer as so much as sort of the opposite, which is, I mean, this is kind of outsider art. I call it in my book outsider art, right. insider knowledge, because mm -hmm. nobody knows you as well as you. So the memory of the day at the beach that you spent might be recorded in terms of the pictures you took and finding, you know, a you know, hundred years ago, somebody would have taken sand and put it with, under scotch tape and had sand right on the page. They wouldn't actually go and find the sand-colored paper. It's a much more sort of immediate, visceral way of documenting a moment. Well, it's the imperfections that I think that are so exquisitely beautiful in, these, in these pages. I agree. What do you think of the future of memory in the digital era? It's a very interesting question. And 
You know, I was talking to the people at WNYC after I did the Leonard Lopez show because they're very interested, and they've created a thing on their Facebook page to look at whether Facebook is a kind of scrapbook. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking a lot about whether, you know, what happens when you have a status update, where does it go after the next status update? Mm-hmm. Do you have, you have to deliberately go and save it? Well, there are applications and various things. And, and imagine difficult. if Mr. Fuller was on Facebook and wait, because he recorded every single thing he did for, what, 50 years? Every 15 oh, minutes? Oh, I think more. He started when he was about 15. Right. Every 15 minutes. Unbelievable. He was a big letter writer. Imagine him on Twitter. <laughs> Bucky on Twitter. <laughs> now, there's a thought. Bucky has <laughs> a million dollar idea. Oh, is that funny? No, no, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it, there's, um, there's this expression, fire hosing, which is people that take pictures with their cameras and they don't think about it because they can delete them. Uh-huh. Right? So there's this kind of like brandishing of the weapon of the cell phone camera to just take whatever's in your path mm-hmm. instead of really making that considered, you know, not that we can all be Cartier for Saul, but that one would assume there's some editorial judgment that happens. And yet... What you're saying is that part of what's beautiful about these, these scrapbooks in my book is, and I agree with you, that is, is the lack of judgment. You figure it out as you go. You make sense of it as you go. You go back, you annotate, you add, you take things out, you break up with a guy, you rip his picture out. I don't know. I think there's some criticism among contemporary scrapbookers, and it's a criticism I might share, which is that digital scrapbooking doesn't have the same kind of physical. You <laughs> can't hold it in your hands. It doesn't have the dog-eared pages. It doesn't have yeah. that sort of beautiful patina of age. I love that you weighed each of the scrapbooks that are featured in the book and document what, that they weigh and the size and the dimensions. But you looked at over a 1,000 scrapbooks. And you had a criteria of five things that uh, you used to determine whether or not something would be included in the book. And I'd really love to talk about that. So the first one was beautiful. So tell, tell us about what your... Um, My criteria for beauty was uh, more eclectic than not. So, for example, there are many beautiful studied examples of just color lithographs. This was a big thing in the 1890s. You know, suddenly there was color printing. Oh, I'm going to save every picture of a colored bird. Mm-hmm. And so you get books just of birds. Not interesting to me. Neither was it interesting for me to include ones that were just newspaper clippings. And mm-hmm. some of those were just poems and some were just... There is one of just obituaries, which I love obituaries. I love biography. I had to put it in there. And it's so macabre. And, and ludicrous in its way. But uh, to me, it was the amalgamation of disparate objects that made it so amazing. I mean, what would possess somebody? And the juxtaposition. I mean, the, what would possess somebody to put a picture of a prayer card next to a picture of Rudy Valentino? Like, <laughs> what, what, was going, the best? what was going through your head when you made that judgment? So, so the more eclectic they were, the better they were. And that means, you know, twigs and chewing gum and newspapers and, and then some. So beauty to me was really about mess. And so the next, the next criteria was a uh, story. And, and my favorite story is about Minnie Reed, your grandmother, who is featured on the cover of the book as well. Um, tell us about that a little bit. Well, you know, I knew that she was a character, Minnie. She, was, she had a very acerbic sense of humor. She never wore pants her whole life. She would put on a, a suit to go check her mail. I mean, she was, just, uh, she was a lady. She was an incredible seamstress. She would go to the store and look at a Chanel suit and pull the label back and then come home and make it from memory. She was an incredible pianist. Um, and, and so she was, you know, this, this character, and I knew her as a child, as somebody who was, you know, six decades older than me. So to find the scrapbook, my cousin found the scrapbook in a closet after she died. So to find her dance cards and things that, about her, about her youth, was so amazing to me. That there were, you know, as I write in the book, there were men that danced with her besides Grandpa was astonishing. I love that my two favorite lines in that story were that uh, you found out that there were people besides Grandpa that danced with her, and also that she... Um, defied the rules of the day by, um, she met your grandfather on a boat, 
and that she wrote in her scrapbook that nice girls don't take boat rides. Which, when you see the picture of her husband, he looks like Woody Allen in Zelig, and he's like, you know, the big bad pharmacist, Leopold Helfand, was not exactly <laughs> a terrifying prospect, but in 1916, that was really, really a, a risk she took. <laughs> so the third criteria was eclectic. Um, tell us about that. Well, as I said before, visually eclectic, but also, you know, uh, you, you take a young girl. Um, there's a, I have a scrapbook in here by a young girl who was really it's a scrapbook all about the Lindbergh kidnapping. Mm. But she does things in the scrapbook, like she creates this makeshift family tree on one side, and then this, the Lindbergh family tree, and you can literally see her trying to work out how it would feel to have a member of her family lost in this tragedy, you know, yeah. a younger brother, I think she has two younger brothers, and she writes when she was born and how old the Lindbergh baby would be, and, and you see her really trying to work through the tragedy on this very personal kind of, you know, stick figure like family tree way. So those kinds of stories which were eclectic and varied in terms of, you know, it wasn't just a girl saving her dance cards, it was Eleanor Moses is another one who comes up in the book who, you know, was a, was a debutante, she was beautiful, she was rich, and she saved money for war orphans during World War One. And so if you really penetrate these stories, you find a level of, of variation in terms of, of people's values, in terms of their priorities, and I felt very much in terms of their character. And that's what makes you fall in love with mm-hmm. you realize yeah. that somebody was giving back or somebody was, was, you know, doing something that was really not something you would have expected of them based on the visual matter at hand. Two of my favorite uh, scrapbooks that, were, that I found to be incredibly eclectic were the Baker scrapbook, which featured candy wrappers. Candy wrappers. Candy wrappers were big. I, and I don't the, uh, you see the original Hershey package. You see the O. Henry package. And my personal favorite, you see the original Mr. Peanut. Mr. Peanut. But I don't, you'll forgive me for not knowing my own book, but somebody in my book kept a Hershey wrapper that I think it was um, uh, the one from Cincinnati School of Music, uh, Mary Baharn, who had a, had a Hershey wrapper with a slogan that was Hershey's was more sustaining than meat. <laughs> Which. <laughs> they might want to revive. I don't know. They can really <laughs> get some mileage out of that. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> and then the the Schultz home study. That is is very likely my favorite. The Schultz home study. Yeah, the, the home study. Stains. Mary Schultz kept meticulous records of all sorts of domestic issues, including how to remove stains from a variety of fabrics and include actual fabric swatches with actual stains. Yeah, so you see the ink and the calla lily. And, yeah. and, and they're four to a page, which has this very sort of Joseph Boy's quality that I thought was so Oh, beautiful. it's magnificent. Uh, the other one that is like it is the girl who saved the twigs from, from yes. the camp yes. and, um, and wrote, you know, twig given in exchange for doing this, this tailored dishes. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it, they're amazing. No child labor laws at camp in the 1920s. <laughs> and who knew you could use milk as a uh, stain remover? And no scotch tape, because scotch tape hadn't been invented yet. Right. So they used bandages. Then the fourth criteria, celebs and civilians. Now, I found it interesting. Three of the celebrities that you feature, scrapbooks of are Anne Sexton, Zelda Fitzgerald, and Lillian Hellman. Common denominator, all tragic women. Yeah. It's <laughs> really a good point. I hadn't really thought of it that way. Maybe that's the tragic streak in my, my you know, Schadenfreude-like life. Um, well, if I could very quickly just say, Zelda was someone who never finished anything. Right. She painted, she did poetry, she did a million different things, and she was kind of okay at most of them, not great at most of them, never finished any of them. Mm-hmm. So the scrapbook was her ideal medium because it's basically a celebration of the incomplete. So that, you know, and she, and just wonderful stuff. It's all at Princeton mm-hmm. for people who want to go look at it. 
uh, Anne Sexton had a great tragedy. Uh, and, you know, she was 19 when she eloped, and that's the motel room key for her wedding night. But how cover. optimistic is that scrapbook? Oh, it is giddy. It's joyful. It's giddy. And, you know, the, there's there's things in it that I didn't include. I mean, other things like the, you know, the... the um, Flowers her husband sent her after the first quarrel, and all sorts of things that really caught her at first. That oh, my God. The, the, the parents oh. way in. I know. <laughs> Sixteen years later, she won the Pulitzer and then took her own life shortly after that. And Lillian Hellman, I mean, who would have thought that anybody that she cared about what people thought? I mean, this is a woman about, you know, who, who saved something that they wrote about her that said uh, this is the sort of woman who could take bottle caps off with her teeth. God then, love her. And then saved, you know, five pages of rough drafts of hate mail she wrote to Tallulah Bankhead. Why were they, why did she hate Tallulah Bankhead so much? Tallulah Bankhead had appeared on Broadway in The Little Foxes and was very outspoken about how little respect she had for Lillian Hellman. And from what I understand, Lillian Hellman did not suffer fools gladly, did not have, you know, she wasn't that sort of, you know, sweet person right <laughs> let's disposition let's just say on <laughs> national radio right um and but she said you know some nasty things about Lillian Hellman who was then with Eric Severide traveling around Russia and doing reports for CBS and she just lost it and the final letter was actually published in Time magazine but I just it revealed a side her book is not beautiful it's not it's, it's at the Harry Ransom Center at the University of Texas at Austin it was a bear to get out of storage it's got cellophane on it it was impossible to photograph but I thought it was an important thing to include because there were so many celebrities I had to immediately discount because, again, my own self-inflicted criteria were, you know, famous people paid people to keep scrapbooks of their famous mm -hmm. doings. And mm -hmm. that wasn't interesting to me. So Gloria Swanson, who literally every time she coughed, it was in a scrapbook. She was a graphic designer for 15 minutes. She had a cosmetics company for 20 minutes. It's all in scrapbooks. It didn't interest me because they were given to somebody else to basically document. Mm -hmm. But the fact that Lillian Hellman saved the rough drafts of hate mail was meaningful to me because it made her human. Yeah. Well, we have another caller, but before we get to that caller, I just want to ask you about the last criteria, which was the American. They yeah. needed to be American. Why? There, because there is an incredible book to be written about books in England. Is that the next book? I don't think. I think I'm done. done. I think I'm done. I mean, I, I have ideas for what I want to turn this into. There's, you know, some interest in a documentary film. There's other kinds of things I'd love to do an exhibit. But I, 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 you know, really, the stuff in England is a totally different. It's, it's, you know, women in the parlor in the 19th century being stuck and sticking pictures of their family in bird cages. And mm. It's, it's a whole other. It is. It is. It is. It is very heading up. I just, I thought I would never finish the book if I didn't. And there's such a rich history in this country. And it was so varied. I mean, Mark Twain, Thomas Jefferson, so many people of all walks of life, politics, poetry, everything you could imagine. I had enough. We have a caller from Philadelphia. We have Bernardo from Philadelphia. Thank you for calling Design Matters, Bernardo. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Jessica. How are you doing? Hi. Hi. Um, well, if you don't mind, I want to go back a little bit. Um, you were talking about the Martha Stewart ready-made stuff, and uh, Debbie mentioned Facebook and uh, Twitter. Uh, and that triggered an idea. It sounds a little bit like what we're going. I'm a designer, and we talk about the death of publishing, how it's being massified, and how anyone who can just grab Photoshop can be a designer. And it sounds that there's a bit of a power. Anyone who can go buy Martha Stewart can be a scrapbooker. Anyone who can go on Twitter can uh, publish their ideas to the world. But is there, do you feel or do you think there's, there's value in that massification? Um, like, I personally could never keep a scrapbook, but since I got my BlackBerry and Twitter, I'm, like, posting every five minutes. Um, do you see a value in that and that more people can express themselves? I'm guessing you're younger than I am. I, I do think it's a generational thing, the, the Twittering thing, although I am Twittering also. So, um, You know, I don't know. I, I, I think it's interesting to come back to something Debbie said earlier about how those things, much as they let you express yourself, how you're going to say them, 
how they're going to be meaningful cumulatively over time, the same way scrapbook. The scrapbook you can pick up, and you see what you did last Christmas, and you see what you did last October. Um, and, and I think there's something also in Facebook, in an email for that matter, you know, is that is there's a flattening visually of the, the potential for, for expression. I mean, it is, we all write, you know, I, I wrote an essay years ago about the fact that on email we all write in Monaco or whatever we were writing about in that time. You know, it, we, we all sort of sound alike typographically. So in Twitter, you know, there's that one line. You're not really adding to the sort of, you're not, it's not an amplified medium through which to express yourself. But you're absolutely right that it, there's something very democratic about it and very uh, kind of accessible about it to all sorts of people. And, and I don't really know where that's going to, pan out. Um, I, I think that there is a, big, a bit of a disconnect, though, between that which is digital and that which is paper. And uh, paper's kind of great, I have to say. Yeah, no, I agree. And as a print designer, I, I love paper and I completely agree. But it's just interesting how new media allow us to do things we would otherwise yeah, but never you know do. What, Bernardo, I will say this. I, last year, I was six months in six different countries. And I took a little Moleskine notebook with me everywhere I went. And it changed my life. Not only that, I mean, every designer has a notebook, I know, but this notebook became, you know, part scrapbook, part journal, part sketchbook. My daughter calls it a scratchbook. It's, you know, I was in the studio last week. We have this crazy studio. Don't ask me how a dragonfly lasted until January, but it did. I was talking to one of my designers. It fell flat on his desk. I went and got a piece of tape and taped it into my book. Now, it sounds really weird. It's really beautiful. It's, really, it's this crazy thing, but it's so much more a record of that moment in my day than me going and buying something at the store or than me Twittering. It's there. You know, the minute you press that wing to the paper, you saw the intricacies of the detail of the wing, and it was really, I mean, literally, my two designers and I sat there for five minutes looking at it. So it sort of brought back to mind the fact that what you touch and what you physically make and what you produce has really a quite meaningful, I think, long-term trajectory that, that um, it's possible. And I don't mean to denigrate, God, we're, I mean, Twitter and Facebook are such fun. They really are fun, and they put you in touch with people you wouldn't otherwise be in touch with, and there's so many wonderful, remarkable social um, things that they allow us to do. But I don't know that the capacity for expression is quite the same. Interesting that we're using the word Twittering or Facebooking or scrapbooking because one of the words that I came upon in the book, and, and Bernardo, thank you for calling, and you're more than welcome to stand on the line with this if you'd like, but I just wanted to take the idea of this word, Twittering or Facebooking or scrapbooking. There was a word I came upon in your book that someone used in their scrapbook. Kodaking. Kodaking out on the lawn. Kodaking. And that was when they were taking pictures. Right. So, so I think that the idea of our recording these things, whether they be dragonflies falling on notebooks or candy wrappers or Levi's uh, labels or twigs or any of the things that we encounter is a part of living. Mm -hmm. And the way that we describe it is only different because we're living in different times. But the act itself is, is really no different. I think you're right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the reconstruction of reality and memory via the scrapbook. And in the VL scrapbook, um, there were a number of ripped letters that were in an envelope. And you write, for her, the tensions between reality and memory are almost playfully expressed as both timekeeping and truth-telling are filtered through her highly subjective perspective. And then you included a marvelous quote by the historian Catherine Ott, which I'd also like to read. And you write, 
scrapbooks shuffle and recombine the coordinates of time, space, location, voice, and memory. What could be more emblematic of the fractured narratives of modernity than scrapbooks? And that, for me, was, I felt, the um, centerpiece of what this book is about. It's not just about ephemera. It's not just about recording lives. It's about the fractured narratives of modernity. It's true. And she writes, and she's a wonderful historian, uh, about what she calls rupture. And rupture as emblematic of a very early 20th century notion. It's what created cubism and Dada in a sense. I mean, it's really the idea that you could fracture the picture plane, that you could fracture the memory plane, that you could actually be discordant in your representation of an idea. Um, and so you have that on one end, and you have the tension on the other end that those of us who grow up in at least Western culture understand that to tell a story is to tell a story with a beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. And so, and so in, the, in the language of the photo album, uh, and there, I, this is me borrowing from uh, other historians, there, there's this notion that you leapfrog from happy event to happy event, and that's why you have these interstitial moments of, of you know, silence where you just have birthdays and holidays, birthday cards and, and photographs of people with cake. Um, but I think that the scrapbook conflates that time-space continuum in a way, very much skewed through the authorship of that individual. And there's no, that's the thing that makes them so crazy for historians. And I, I should say this, that there's no page numbers. There's no way to index them. There's, and this is why it took me so long to go through all those scrapbooks, that you would go into a collection. And you know, I went to Princeton and said they had six Rudyard Kipling scrapbooks. Well, I got all excited. It's just scrapbooks of his obituaries. <laughs> they wasn't around when the scrapbooks were made. Right? <laughs> you have no way of knowing this from going through these collections. Right. And yet when they're made by people individually, they have a resonance that is unlike anything else. Well, Jessica, what are you going to do with all these scrapbooks that you have? I think I need to get them out of my studio or no one will talk to me anymore. <laughs> they, they take up a lot of room. I can they imagine thousands. Yeah. I think we'll probably donate the collection. Yeah. Um, because I think that... Will there, be exhi- will there be any exhibits? I really think it's impossible to exhibit because like anything with many, many pages... And you don't want people touching them. It's really, really yeah. hard. Um, there's been some interest um, uh, in, in exhibitions, but it's a very difficult curatorial thing to do. I, I'm more interested in actually making a film about it, I think, because... The stories I've gone back and found families. I'm on Ancestry.com reconstructing some of these family histories. Oh, the fam- some of the family trees are marvelous. In so, you know, it's really, there's, it's, it's an ongoing question about how one's humanity is represented in graphic form. And that, at the end of the day, you know, if I die tomorrow, they're going to say two things about me, Debbie. They're going to say she's the only person on the planet who preferred justified type to non-justified type. Like really, it's a sickness. It's a pathology unto me only. Okay. And they're going to say she really was just obsessed with telling stories about people. And I grew up at a time and was educated in graphic design at a time when to do these kind of idiosyncratic things was not what we did. Right. So, I mean, I couldn't have written this book 20 years ago, and, and I'm glad I've written it now, and I'm so happy to have been on your show. Thank you. I'm so happy you wrote this book as well. It's, it's a wonder. We've come to the end of our broadcast. I'd like to thank you so much, Jessica, for joining me today. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling Brands, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon, my chief researcher. Joining me next week is the designer Neville Brody. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk. 
Voice America Business.